Good morning and Merry Christmas to everyone. So wonderful to have you. Great to see you all back. And for those who are first time visitors, we're very, very blessed to have you. Would love to meet you after service in the back if you are available to do that. Well, this morning, as this is our final service before Christmas, our official Christmas service, we're ending our four-part sermon series that I've been calling Practicing the Stories of Christmas. And the reason I've been calling it that is because these stories that we tell are not just meant to be heard, they're meant to be lived. They're not just meant to be heard, they're meant to be lived. And so we've been looking at these very familiar Christmas stories that many of us have heard since we were young boys and girls, but perhaps it's for that reason that we kind of hear it and drown it out and don't see any practical significance for our lives. And so I've been trying to draw attention to the fact that these wonderful stories that we've heard for so long have the power to change our lives today. And so what I've done is I've taken the four angelic visits. So there were four visits of angels in the gospel stories, and I've taken each one of them, and we're looking at what we can learn from these angelic annunciations, these angelic visits for our own lives. And so this morning we come to the last angelic annunciation, And that is the announcement to the shepherds. So the announcement to the shepherds. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. We're focusing on just verses 8 through 20. But for the sake of Christmas and context, we will begin at verse 1 for our scripture reading. So Luke 2, 1 through 20. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, 
that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us. Lord, we have transgressed. We have sinned. We have broken your laws, and you have every right not to be on speaking terms with anyone in this room. But we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God who chases after his lost sons and daughters until they are found and until they come home. Lord, we thank you for speaking us your word in the Bible, in Holy Scripture. We thank you for the word that was made flesh, Jesus Christ, who opens up God's heart and reveals it to the world. I pray now by your Holy Spirit that we too in this room would have our hearts opened up. We pray we would not be like those 2,000 years ago who had no room for you, who were too busy for you, who didn't want your lordship over their lives. We just pray you would grant us the heart of these shepherds to hear, to pursue, and to spread the good news about the true meaning of Christmas. We ask for your blessing now over this time of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a wonderful story, just beautiful passage of Scripture. And I, I love looking at the shepherds because I think there's so much in this account of the angelic visit to the shepherds for us. And so I want to work our way through this whole text and arrive at the end where we will focus on three particular things that the shepherds did. But let's begin by looking once again at verses 1 through 8. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there for the days to be completed for her to be delivered, she brought forth, brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Here's the first point I want to draw from this morning's text. At Christmas, 
outsiders are invited in. Outsiders are invited in. Um, I don't know how many of you know, it's in church lingo, um, they refer to, <laughs> it might be you, um, refer to them as CEOs. Oh, a CEO, I want to be a CEO, what is that? Christmas and Easter only. Okay, so that's the only time CEOs go to church, Christmas and Easter only. And here's, here's kind of a cool thing. This is not to shame you. This is to say Christmas is your It really, really is. And being at church is exactly for you because at Christmas, outsiders are invited in. What do I mean? Well, a couple of things here. First of all, shepherds were social outsiders. Shepherds were social outsiders. If you wanted to get good news about an ordinary king or an ordinary emperor, you would not go to the shepherds. You would go to somebody else. If you were non-Jewish, obviously you, you would go to Rome. You would want to announce it in Rome. Or you'd want to go to any of the other major cities, Alexandria, Antioch, or any of these other great cities where the political power figures reside and where many of the people are. The shepherds do not dwell by their occupation. They do not dwell in cities. They dwell outside. So they're quite literally outsiders. They are not in these densely populated areas that control the world. They are outsiders. For the Jewish community... And it's interesting because the Old Testament is replete with references to shepherds. And in a positive light, Yahweh, God, the name of the living God of Israel, is said to be a shepherd of his people Israel. So you think, well, that would be a good thing. The great King David, who who is prominent in the gospel narratives, was called when he was a shepherd. So you'd think, a shepherd, that would be good. But truthfully, so. Practically, shepherds were low at the bottom of the social scale. They touched filthy animals all day long, and so if you were a devoutly religious Jew, you would know that shepherds fit the category of sinner because they were very often unable or unwilling to meet all of the various cleanliness laws that Leviticus required. You were an unclean person doing an unclean job. Shepherds were apparently, and uh, we all know there's various industries, maybe, you know, where there's a bad reputation, lawyers, I know some wonderful uh, lawyers, but, you know, there's some not so good ones out there, so I've heard. There's these different jobs that get that kind of thing, and it's not that the job has to be a bad job, it's just unfortunately some people do that. Apparently, uh, shepherds had a bad reputation. Um, They had a little problem when they were watching sheep. And so remember, the sheep they're watching usually aren't just their own. Sometimes shepherds were hired out over somebody else's flock, so it's not theirs at all. Many times, shepherds would have a flock of their own and a flock that they were watching. So they had their flock, someone else's flock, their money, and someone else's money. And they were notorious for going, no, no, you know, when you, no, you didn't have 50 sheep, you had 49. You had 49, like, wait a minute, you have one extra sheep and I have one, but no, no, no. They would confuse mine and thine. They were known for doing that. Shepherds were known for being dishonest people. So these people who are outside the city, outside the circles of power, social standing, not observing the cleanliness, 
laws of the Old Testament scriptures, not observing practical rules of morality that most people, even outside Judaism, would acknowledge are not good things. And those are the kinds of people that God chose to reveal the announcement of Christ's birth to that night. That's amazing. And this is not just a one-off. In the teaching ministry of Jesus, Jesus was fond of talking about how when God's kingdom come, everything is turned upside down. Jesus said things like, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. If anybody among you wants to be great, let him be your servant. The very ministry and kingdom and nature of the gospel is that when God comes in, everything upside down. Or I should say, right side up. And so Christmas really is for outsiders. If you are here this morning and you don't feel comfortable in church, you don't feel comfortable with religion, and you think that disqualifies you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for outsiders. It's for people who don't feel like this is for them. It's for people who don't feel like they're particularly religious or moral or they're never good enough to meet God's standards. Christmas is for you. God is inviting all of the outsiders in. And conversely, many of the people who take pride in their own righteousness, in their own achievement, who think they deserve a place at God's table because they earned it, they are the ones who are on the outside of Christmas. Outsiders are invited in. Look at verses 9 and 10. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Secondly, Christmas invites you to exchange your great fear for great joy. Exchange your great fear for great joy. As I was looking over this text, it's, it's definitely very interesting when you're, when you're looking at the Greek because it just it emphasizes things. You see it here in English, but it emphasizes it even more. So I don't know if any of you have done a long road trip through the United States. Has anybody done that, uh, taken a long trip? Well, I didn't know this until we sold everything we owned years ago and felt God calling us to Austin, Texas. So we sold everything we owned, got in our cars and started driving to Texas. And we're driving through and there was, I can't remember where it was exactly. It might have been the middle of nowhere. But we were somewhere in West Texas and it was at night and I could not believe how absolutely pitch dark it was. I've never seen been to any place that was that dark. I guess I've always taken it for granted that there's going to be street lights somewhere or houses somewhere with porch lights on somewhere. No, nothing. We were in the middle of nowhere. The clouds were covering the moon. No lights anywhere, no houses anywhere, and it was pitch dark. And my wife has night blindness, so it was like her worst nightmare, and she was freaking out, and we pulled over, we had two cars, and we're following each other. I'm like, all right, honey, I'll slow down, because you're going kind of slow. I'll slow down a little more, so you can at least see my brake lights. 
And, and that'll be that. So the shepherds are in pitch darkness. Think about this. There's no electricity. They're outside the city. They're in the pitch dark. And the language, when it says they were watching over, it's actually very specific language. The language of a sentry or military guard. They were on guard. Apparently, for a shepherd, the daytime is not the problem. Predators and robbers don't come in the daytime. When do they come? They come at night. If you're going to lose one of your little flock, it'll be at night. So imagine them. They got the fire going, but it's pitch darkness out here. They're on guard. They're on watch. They're on the edge. They're looking into the dark, waiting to see if two pairs of eyes are going to pop out at any time. So they're on guard. They're on high alert. And suddenly, out of nowhere, it says, the glory of Yahweh, the glory of the God of Israel, shows up, and it says it emblazoned around them. They were surrounded suddenly. And the language is, they feared with great fear. That's the, the Greek. It's a triple intensity. It's, I don't know what the exact... English equivalent would be, but it would be something like, it scared the living heck out of them. They were utterly terrified. Everybody thinks, oh, if God would just speak to me, everything would be fine. It's like, read the Bible. Like, that's some like 21st century American in my devotionals I wish I could see. No, trust me, you might not want that. Because many times when God appears, it's utterly terrifying. People fall down, pass out, freak out. And so the angel has to say to them, and by the way, he's not just being polite and being friendly. Oh, there, there, don't be afraid. It's a command. So imagine the shepherds, they're, they're watching, it's pitch dark, they're waiting for maybe a, a wolf or something. All of a sudden, the glory of the Lord and an angel, and they're like starting to cry. Oh my gosh. And then the angel says, stop crying, don't be afraid. Okay, okay, we'll stop, we'll stop. They were filled with great fear. And the word of the Lord to them is, fear not. I've come to give you great joy. What an exchange. What an exchange. What if, in the spirit of Christmas, the gift of God in Jesus Christ, what if God is offering you and I today to reach into your heart to take what scares you most and to replace it with exceeding joy. What if God could do that for you this morning? Would you receive that gift? Would you open that gift? Can you buy that gift for anybody? Can anybody else buy that gift for you? This is the gift of God. This is the gift that only God can give. To take fear out of my heart and to replace it with joy. Now to be sure, we try to do this ourselves, don't we? I try to replace my fear. And it's usually change my circumstances, right? Like if I'm feared of this, we'll then figure out how to, how to handle it, Google it, you know, uh, call a friend, you know, what, do whatever I got to do to change the outward circumstances. That, that's how I normally try to get over it. Read a book, 
right? How, how, to, how to be successful at this, how to negotiate this, um, how to get out of this jam, whatever it is, what to do with your life, uh, you know, whatever it is. Oh, I'll read a book. I'll get the information. But I think inevitably in life, if God is gracious, He'll let us get to a place in life where there is no book for that. You can't change that. You suddenly realize that I'm in a place where maybe I've learned to manage my fear. Maybe I've, I've learned resources and, and relationships and connections that could help ease that, but, I've, but that means I've depended on those things as Savior. They've become functional saviors to me. And if I'm brought to a place in life where nothing else will save me, then maybe for the first time in my life, I'm opening to Jesus being my Savior. That's why so many stories, not all, but so many stories of the church of how did you come to Jesus are not, well, I was a really good person, I kept all the rules, and one day my life was so great, I'm like, I'll put a cherry on top, kind of like a Sunday. You know, that's my life. It's a Sunday with a whipped cream, and I just need a cherry. There's Jesus. For many people, it's like I'm broken. Everything I believed in, trusted in is gone. The foundations of my life are, life are shaking and no one can help me. And people betray me and I've got nothing left. When there's no noble, prideful, self-righteous thing we can even claim, it's all gone. And that's when we're willing to give Jesus a try. And the humility of Jesus, we see it in Christmas, the incarnation, that the eternal, infinite, holy, glorious God would dwell with sinners. And that in that moment when we deserve it least, when God knows, and think about it, if people know, how much more does God know that He's your last resort? Who likes being the last option for anything? I won't ask you to raise hands, you might start crying, but you know, was anyone picked last as a kid in PE on the football team or the baseball? How did that feel? How did it, you know, how does it feel? You know, you're, somebody's like, oh, okay, I'll date you. And like, really? You will? I didn't think you ever, well, I dated literally everyone else in the world. You know, I was on Tinder, 3.7 billion, you know, and like now you're, you're the last, you're like, oh, okay, well, whatever, it's better than nothing. Nobody likes being picked last. And yet the truth is that's when most of us come to Jesus and the humility of Jesus is even though he knows he is our last resort, he says yes to us anyway. The humility of God that he who deserves everything, deserves to be number one and, and he does deserve to be number one. But he's willing to let us choose everything else before him. Find out they are not saviors that can save until we choose him. And he says yes to us. And he is able to take our great fear, such as the shepherds had, and replace it with great joy. Look at verses 11 and 12. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Thirdly, Christmas is the announcement of Jesus' identity as Savior, Christ, and Lord. If you'll notice here in this text, the name Jesus is not mentioned. 
the angels don't tell him his name is Jesus. We know that the name Jesus or Yeshua or Yehoshua was a common name in the first century. The name Jesus alone didn't necessarily mark him out. What marked him out is who he was, what his character was, what his identity was, what his function was, what his nature was. And so while the shepherds don't receive the name Jesus, they receive about Jesus what everyone needs to know. What I would want everyone to know this morning and not leave without knowing is who Jesus is. Because you can celebrate Christmas and you can even know Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, who is Jesus? And we get three key identifiers. Savior, Christ, Lord. Number one, Savior. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you of your sins. Jesus is the only one who can forgive you of your sins. I think even people who say they don't believe in God, whether we want to argue that that's not true and they're just saying that, but even people don't believe in God, they know they have done wrong to others. They have harmed others. And as much as you can try to make amends and do whatever, you, you cannot erase what you've done. It doesn't go away. We know even towards one another we are sinners. That we do bad things that hurt other people. We know that even by our own standard, even if we don't believe the Bible or we don't have the Bible as our standard, yet you know, you've failed your own standard, haven't you? The standard you've set for yourself, there's a law in your own heart. And there's times where you expected certain things of yourself and you say to yourself after you blew it, I can't believe I did that. You know you're a sinner with respect to other people. It doesn't take a big leap of faith to understand that if there is a God, you have sinned against Him. Because if there's a God, you're made in His image. If there's a God, the purpose and plan for your life is defined by Him, not by you. The way that human life is meant to be lived, with its morals and ethics and laws, are not yours to create or destroy. They're God's. So we have sinned against God and we deserve what sin deserves, which is punishment. But here the angels say Jesus is a Savior. He's the one who forgives. And it's the kind of forgiving that actually transforms the one who, is, who has sinned and the one who has been sinned against. He is a Savior. He not only forgives the wrong we have done to God and to others, but He is the healer of the wrongs that have been done to us. He is a redeemer. So often in life, the reason people can't succeed, whether it's in relationships or business, I, I know there's many people who are very successful in business, and they absolutely destroy their personal lives. Success isn't just measured in business or in money. It's in relationships with people. 
But many times we can't be successful because we say we've been wronged by others. I've become the kind of person that, that can't trust anyone. I'm an angry person. I'm a bitter person. I'm a selfish person. And that's because of what other people have done. Jesus as Savior not only forgives the wrong we've done, but he redeems us from the wrong done, done to us by others. And he actually redeems that and uses it in our lives so that we can identify with others who suffer. He can actually redeem the pain and the loss and the difficulty and the trials and connect our hearts with the hearts of other suffering people so that we can experience God's saving activity in Jesus together. Jesus is Savior. He is Christ. Of course, we know that Christ is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Mashiach. Mashiach means the anointed one. And of course, throughout Israel's history, they believed there was a God, and they believed God acted in history. But because of sin, that there was always a distance between man and God. And once in a while, God would so draw near a person, they would call it anointing. God would so draw near a person in a gifted, functional way that they would say, oh, there is an anointing. But you would often see the anointing come and go. You can see people who are anointed one season of their lives and it's gone the next. The story of Samson is such a story. A man anointed by God to be a savior of his people and yet he comes to a point in his life where he does not know that the Spirit of God has departed from him. Over and over in Israel's history, they're longing for, for a Messiah, for a king that will rule over and David is kind of the best example they get. But even David was an adulterer and a murderer. There was a longing in Israel for an anointed one on whom the anointing would stay and rest in fullness forever. And that is the prophecy of John the Baptist in the New Testament. John was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John was told, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain remain, abide, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the rightful king of Israel. So to say that Jesus is Christ or Jesus is Messiah is to situate the true identity of God in Scripture. That Jesus is fulfilling the grand sweep of the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. So that when we read Scripture, we are looking for the Messiah everywhere. It is Jesus who fulfills all of the Bible. Jesus is the Messiah. He is our King. And life, therefore, is one long repentance, one long metanoia, where we are transforming our prior allegiances to the things of this world, to the things that don't last, to the things that are sinful and wrong, and aligning ourselves with the kingdom and way of Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus is Lord. Now that word Lord in Greek is kurios, and while it can be used in several ways, the Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible, when they took the divine name in Hebrew, Yahweh, God's covenant name, and they rendered it into Greek, they used this word, kurios. So whenever you want to see the name Yahweh in the New Testament, you look for kurios. When the angels say that Jesus is kurios, they're not just saying he is a 
sir or a boss or just some other leader in a finite temporal sense. They are saying that Jesus is Yahweh dwelling among us. And that is the promisey, uh, prophecy and promise of Isaiah that the Messiah would come and His name would be Emmanuel, God with us. That God Himself is present in the person of Jesus Christ. So much so that when people ask Christians, what does God look like? We rightly say, look at Jesus Christ. You can behold the face of the invisible God in the visible face of Jesus. Emmanuel, Kurios, Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. And thus Jesus is also worthy of our worship. In the early centuries of the church, whether Jesus was Kurios, whether He was Lord, whether He was Yahweh, was not a theoretical debate. It was intensely practical. It had to do with worship. If Jesus is not Lord, if He's not Kurios, if He's not Yahweh, then according to the Bible, you must not worship Him. You must not. You don't have a polytheistic background where you can say, ah, oh, well, worship Jesus just in case He's God, but then you can worship a bunch of others. No, you're not allowed. The Hebrew religion was a monotheistic religion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is only one God. Him only shall you serve. Him you shall love with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So either Jesus is Yahweh, and we must worship Him, and it is sin not to. Or, we must not worship Him. And the Apostle Paul, and the New Testament writers, and the early Christian church wrestled over this, and the answer is that in Jesus, Yahweh Himself is present in His fullness. That's the language of Paul in Colossians. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus bodily. Therefore, we worship Jesus on Christmas. We don't just reminisce about Him. We don't just say, what a great little moment in history. Oh, he, what a great moral teacher that was born 2000. No, we say that God dwelt among us and Him must we worship. Verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill. Christmas is the declaration of God's invitation to world peace in Jesus Christ. Many have been pursuing peace every place in the world, but in the one place it can be found. Jesus Christ. In the angelic announcement to the shepherds, they are saying that God in sending forth His Son into the world is showing that God is coming on a mission of peace. The, angel, the angelic host here, the word host is army. So He's here with a, a military army surrounded in all their glory, ready if they need to, to kill and slaughter and maim, whatever they need to do. But the announcement is one of peace. God could come to you with a sword, but in Jesus Christ, 
He comes to you in peace. So if we want to see peace with God in our lives, in our hearts, peace in the lives of others, peace in the world, we must look to the only one who can bring it, and that is Jesus Christ. And lastly, let's look at these few things that the shepherds can teach us this morning in verses 15 through 20. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. So in closing, what should our response be to the Christmas story, to the Christmas announcements? And there's three things that we see the shepherds do that we can follow this morning. Number one, the shepherds received the good news about Jesus. You've heard the Christmas story this morning. You've heard it expounded and explained and connected with other parts of Scripture and history. But what will you do with that? Do you say, like those in the first century, I have no room. Go somewhere else. Or like the shepherds, will you receive this word? Make a place in your heart this morning. Maybe you're not prepared to sweep every room and make it clean for Jesus to come in. Let me just encourage you, just invite him into the place where you're ready. Because when Jesus comes in, he comes in for a lifetime. You have the rest of your life and all eternity to become the man or woman God wants you to be. You don't have to become everything you're supposed to be this morning. That's not going to happen. But what can happen is you can be a new man or a new woman today, right now. Because as soon as Jesus moves in and takes residency in your heart, you are changed forever. So receive the good news about Jesus. Number two, the shepherds pursued personal knowledge about Jesus. Notice the shepherds didn't just receive it and then say, oh, well, you know, I'll wait around for someone else to look into that or maybe another day. We see them pursue it. They went with haste. They went right away. They didn't wait and say, oh, I'll do that another day. They pursued personal knowledge about Jesus. You're not going to know everything you need to know this morning. You're not going to have all the questions answered. Well, what about this? What about that? And what about that one verse that's kind of weird and I don't know what to do with that? And, and how should I think about this? And, and why do some churches do this? And how come some Christians did this? And what about church history? You can have a million questions. But what the shepherds model for us is the pursuit. Begin the pursuit. Whatever you need to know, need to know, God will reveal to you. The Bible says that in the day you search for me with your whole heart, you will find me. But you must search. You must pursue God. So I want to encourage you, pursue a personal knowledge of Jesus. And lastly, the shepherds declared the good news about Jesus. Notice they didn't just receive it and pursue it for their own personal private gain. Many Christians in America do this. They hear it, receive it, pursue it for their own, and share it with nobody. 
no evangelism. The shepherds published it widely. They made it known. They told everyone. One of the things we're meant to do, and this could be for seasoned believers who've received and pursued, but they declare. I want to encourage you this Christmas season, be filled with this joy of the Lord and declare what He's done for you. Don't just declare the story. Declare what this story has done for you. How has the Christmas story changed your life? It's very tough to argue with a changed life. Declare the story of what God has done for you. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You so much for revealing Yourself to us. We thank You. You desire a relationship with us. We thank You that You want us to know who You are. We thank You that You know exactly who we are on the inside. Every good and every bad thing about us, You know it all together. And You sent Jesus into the world knowing all of that. Knowing every wrong thing we would ever do. And yet showing us that You are willing to forgive us and cleanse us of all sin, of all wrongdoing. You are desiring to give us a new life, a new beginning today. And that the rest of our lives have eternal meaning and significance that nothing in life, not even our dying day, will be without eternal meaning. And so we pray we would welcome this gift of Christmas which is the gift of Christ into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.